to uh, have a, a great writer uh, here on the podcast, uh, someone who I've admired for a long time, uh, a friend and and uh, and uh, a terrific, terrific author. He has a new book. Uh, Wayne Coffey's with us. Wayne, welcome. Great to be with you, Joe. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, so here's my first question for you. Wayne has written uh, a new book about the 1969 Mets called They Said It Couldn't Be Done, the 69 Mets, New York City, and the Most Astonishing Season in Baseball History, which I would agree it is the most astonishing season in baseball history. But here's here's my opening uh, question to you. You wrote a book that I loved, that I've told you I loved, uh, called uh, uh, Winter Boys about the, about the uh, 1980 Olympic hockey team. So what is it about miracles? Something about miracles that you're always drawn to? You're only going to write books about miracles? Is that the deal? I don't know if it's quite the deal. I wouldn't. I'm not sure it's the uh, the top line in my LinkedIn um, profile. <laughs> but um, you know, there's something really uh, sweet and charming and uh, and evergreen, really, Joe, about about events such as this. And and to me, really, one of the there's a lot of ugliness in sports these days, and to me, the the wonder and the beauty of it still is is that it's it's completely unscripted. We really don't know what's going to happen, and the you know much like the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team had no business beating the Soviets in Lake Placid that night. Well, the 1969 Mets had no business winning a hundred games in the regular season and then seven of eight in the playoffs and and doing the uh, the wildly improbable. And it makes for it makes yeah. for great writing, no, you know. I mean, there's you can, you know, it's a great story, and really, you can only screw it up. So you try not to. <laughs> no, it's really cool, and 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 one of the things that's so great about about this book, and so great about uh, retelling the story about the '69 Mets, is there really is a lot of sweetness in in this story, and and you 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 make that point about you know things not always being all that great in sports now. I mean, this is a very and in, in fact, this would be sort of my big takeaway. This is there is a very very sweet element to that team, to the way you've wrote about that team. I mean, and and this goes across the board, but I would say the one the the where it starts for me as I read the book was just what an extraordinary leader. Gil Hodges was as the manager of that team. And also what a sweet guy he was. And and it's interesting because when people talk about Gil Hodges now, of course, they talk about the Hall of Fame and him not getting in yet. And and uh, you know, he there's there are all sorts of issues about, you know, his numbers and this and that and the other thing. But what you really brought to the to the forefront is just why so many people want him in the Hall of Fame. So many people loved him because he really was an extraordinary person, wasn't he? I, I could not agree more with that, Joe. And, um, you know, the Hall of Fame campaign aside, yeah, I mean, I am certainly on that bandwagon. But this every single player who I spoke to on the 69 Mets, Joe, said this never would have happened without Gil Hodges. And to me, he did, he did the hardest thing that it is for a leader of any business, any sports team, any enterprise at all to do, and that is completely changed the culture. He he showed up in 1968, and let's face it, the Mets were the long-running laughing stock of baseball. And from day one, he basically told the guys, sure. 
we're done being the lovable losers. And, you know, it's one thing to say that, and it's another thing to actually make it happen. But he, he did this not only with his command of baseball and his strategic decisions, and of course, having great players like Tom Seaver and Jerry Kuzman and Cleon Jones in the pipeline, that, that absolutely didn't hurt. But he, he made this change by just getting everybody to buy in, by, by, by celebrating the, um, the role players, by giving everyone ownership to it. And, um, you know, this was a man who was just, who was deeply humble. It was never about him. It, it was about, um, really, there was this, this kind of fundamental Midwestern uh, goodness about him. And I think it radiated it in, in everything everything he did. Um, you know, Joe, there's, there's actually, it has nothing to do with the 69 Mets, but one of my favorite stories about Gil Hodges uh, concerns um, a player he had with the Washington Senators, who uh, longtime baseball fans may remem- remember, Ryan Duran was his name. He was a star relief pitcher for the Yankees, the, probably the sure. hardest thrower in the game in his era. He was also a guy who had uh, a serious drinking problem uh, especially in the latter part of his career. And Ryan Duran's last major league outing was for the Senators. He came in, he was he gave up a hit and a walk. He had no idea where the ball was going. His career was over. He was terribly distraught. He had this terrible drinking issue. And at the end, after the game, he got dressed and went over to um, a bridge uh, over the Potomac River, uh, known colloquially around D.C. as the Jumper's Bridge, and climbed to the top. And Gil Hodges found out about this. The police got word to the senators. Hodges found out. He raced over to the bridge, and he basically talked Ryan Duran down and, and said, Ryan, you're too good for this. You've got too much to live for. And, you know, please don't, you know, just come down. We're going to help you. This is going to get better. And cut to the end of the story, Ryan Duran ended up getting sober, becoming uh, an alcohol and drug counselor, who saved who knows how many lives because of his, his honesty and his his own uh, his own experiences and you know coming back from the depths of despair. Yeah, it's it's amazing, just amazing. And and the thing that that strikes me, and I mean, I mean, look, there are so many stories uh, that you tell about the '69 Mets, but specific to Hodges uh, and why he came across to me so much is. He was a great player, and and you and I have been around this these games long enough to know that great players very often do not make good managers uh, for probably the exact reasons why Gil Hodges was a good manager, which was that he didn't lean look at the stars any differently than than he did the the role players. He treated everybody the same. He it, more than the same. I mean, I think I think one of the coolest parts about this book that comes across is how the role players felt every bit as much a part of the team as the stars. And, and having written a book about the 75 Reds, I can tell you that was not the way at all that they felt they, they, that was a star driven team. That 69 Mets team, though it had stars was not. And I, I think Gil Hodges was the reason. And it is, it is particularly striking because Hodges was such a good player himself. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, for a guy who hit 370 career home runs right. and had the pedigree that he did as the, the anchor of those great Dodger teams in the 50s, I mean, this was a guy like uh, Al Weiss was a 
215 hitter in 1969. He was the, the quintessential utility infielder, good glove, no hit guy who ended up having a massive impact not only in that season but in the World Series hit one of the biggest home runs in Met history in game five Al Weiss said he he never felt greater as a ball player never felt more empowered more believed in than he did when he played for Gil Hodges he had a way of of instilling this this faith this sense in you this belief really that um you know that you were important and that you you were going to come through if he was going to put you in the right spot. And J.C. Martin told me the same thing. Duffy Dyer, the backup catcher, I mean, across the board on this team, these guys said that he just he just infused them with this with this belief that they never had before. And it wasn't just this hocus pocus feel good stuff. It was. It was Hodge's belief that every player had value, and if he used them properly, he was going to get um, a tremendous bang out of that value. Yeah, it's it's really, really cool. I have to say, uh, having written a book about the 75 Reds and, and uh, uh, doing all of the research that you obviously did, and you spent years on, on the researching this 69 Mets team, I, I felt that author's sort of joy – Whenever you would come across something that was like pretty surprising and new, I mean, what's not, what's not you know what's left to know, right, about the '69 Mets? But yet, if you go back and look at this stuff, you find all of these cool little things. And one of the one of the really cool things, uh, very small but but cool, was everybody remembers Tommy Agee's uh, amazing catch. Uh, in the World Series, and and you know it's been replayed over and over and over again. And you found out something that I absolutely did not know about that catch. Yes, Tommy Agee made those made those catches with a Johnny Callison's glove. Johnny Callison being a, a, <laughs> a famous right fielder with a, with an incredible arm. Uh, I'm old enough to remember him like just gunning people down. Um, and so, who would have thought that? But one of my trips to the Hall of Fame, I actually saw. This glove, Tommy Agee's glove, and I look closer, and here it is—a Johnny Callison autograph model. <laughs> and you know, and you're absolutely right, Joe. As a as a as a writer, as a reporter, the the delicious part of this journey is unearthing these these little nuggets. Um, that I mean, we all know we all know the ending, you know. And you can look on Baseball Reference and find out the line score, and you know who hit the home runs, and Don Clendenin was the MVP. But you know, who knew that that the, Two of the greatest catches in World Series history, Tommy Agee, a kid from Whistler, Alabama, made it with uh, uh, Johnny Callison's glove. Or, for that matter, that Al Weiss, the bat that he used to hit that uh, game-tying home run in, in uh, Game 5 of the series, was not even his own bat. It, it, he, uh, it, before the series started, he, um, there was a representative from the Adirondack Bat Company uh, who said, hey um, – Here's one of our bats, and Al said, "Oh, that's okay. Looks feels pretty good." He got in the cage and started hitting line drives, and uh, Al Weiss did not hit that many line drives. So he he said, "You know, I like this." But the problem was that Al Weiss was on a contract. The contract may have paid him twenty five dollars, but he was under contract to Louisville Slugger, and the Louisville Slugger rep came up and said, "Al, you, you can't use that bat, the Adirondack bat, in the World Series." And Al's like the most deeply honorable 
man you could ever find just said, listen, I'm sorry. I, I understand. I have a contract with you, but this is my one World Series turned out to be his only World Series. And I'm using this bat that I'm hitting well with. So the, the little slugger said, just do me one favor that Adirondack bats had this little stripe on it. That was sort of their signature, like the, you know, their version of the Nike swoosh. And he just said, just, just rub right. out the, rub out the stripes so that people on TV can't see that it's an Adirondack bat. Al said, okay, I'll rub out the stripe. And, and with that, with that um, adulterated bat, he, he hit a, a home run off Dave McNally to tie the series. Yeah, it's so cool. It's so cool. But you know that team. I mean, and and only by really going back and reliving it, do you fully appreciate how bad the Mets were leading up to that year, how unlikely everything was, how good that Cubs team was, uh, and and all of these things. But I have to admit, there are certain stories and certain people that stood out, and and always do in these kinds of things. And one of those people is is one who I, I fear has been a little bit lost to history, despite having an, not just a good story, but an absolutely insane story. And that's Jerry Kuzman, right? Oh, yeah. Jerry Kuzman was, he, you know, he was the he was the yang to Seaver's yang, you know, and people forget that Seaver and Kuzman t- together won 18 of 19 games to finish that year. But he was a he was a completely dominant left-handed pitcher who won uh, 222 major league games. And honestly, Joe would would have gotten a lot of Hall of Fame consideration if he hadn't been on some brutal Met teams at the end of his career. Right. Um, but Kuzmin um, is a guy from a farm kid from Appleton, Minnesota, who never played Little League, right. never played Babe Ruth League, Pony League. It's crazy. Uh, you name it, he didn't play it. And he first his first organized baseball was played when his older brother Orville said, um, "Jerry, I need you to play on my beer league team." And Jerry <laughs> started pitching for Orville's beer league team, and who knew that he was going to turn into you know the uh, the Sandy Koufax or Steve Carlton of the Minnesota Central Minnesota beer leagues? Well, he ended up just being a a, a huge just do, hugely dominant force on the mound. Then he goes to, this is the late sixties. He enlists in the army and he's in Fort bliss, Texas. So he shows up at Fort bliss, Texas, and they, who happen to have a pretty good baseball team. And the, um, and the manager of the team said, Oh, well, who are you? And he said, I'm a left-handed pitcher. And the guy said, okay, well show me what you got. Kuzman gets on the mound and throws a few pitches to the manager. And the guy says, Whoa, Um, so he goes and gets a real catcher and the real catcher's name is John Lucchese Jr. Who is from Staten Island, New York. And John Lucchese Jr. Catches Kuzman and, and says, I cannot believe, where did this kid come from? And I can't believe it's one of the greatest pitchers I've ever caught. He calls his father, who is a Met usher at Shea Stadium. (laughs) And he says, dad, we have a kid at Fort Bliss who you guys need to check out. So he passes this on to Joe McDonald, the farm director, who is the only, he's the only surviving member of the Met front office. And Joe, this is one of my favorite parts of the story, Joe. He, so uh, Joe McDonald uh, tells Red Murph, the Met scout in Texas, who signed Nolan Ryan and Boswell and a lot of the other guys. 
but long distance calls were too expensive. So he wrote Red Murph a letter (laughs) and said, go to Fort Bliss and check out this kid. Well, Red Murph did. And, um, he saw Kuzman and right away was blown away. And, and the Mets offered him the life-changing uh, money of $1,500. And, and <laughs> Kuzman said, you know, I think I'm going to pass. The Minnesota Twins are also interested. And Kuzman figured, you know, maybe I'll get him up to two grand or something. And uh, Red Murph goes away, comes back, offers Kuzman $1,400. Goes away, comes back again. And every time he's seen Kuzman, he realizes this kid totally has the goods. Anyway, the offer goes down to $1,200. It gets lower every time. And Kuzman said, I finally signed before I owed the Mets money. (laughs) So, and that's how Jerry Kuzman came to be a New York Met. And uh, just like, you know, just another another passage to the big leagues, right? We hear it all the time. (laughs) <laughs> it's so great. It's what's so great about, you know, getting to tell those kinds of stories. I mean, it's it's something that you you would think could never happen now. I mean, every now and again there is like a Kurt Warner story, right, where the guy's shelving uh, groceries and and yep. playing in the indoor football league, right? It happens every now and again. But when you read a story like that, when you when you when you hear a story about a guy who honestly almost anything happens in his life a little bit differently the guy is your insurance salesman or 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 whatever you know he's he's or he's working on a farm or or whatever the case may be that he's doing something entirely different if anything changes only this crazy series of events can happen where he's going to end up being a hero uh on on one of the most famous world series teams ever it's it's insane it's insane no, you- you, you can't make it up. And this team, Joe, were it was full of the, of these remarkable journeys. And, and you know, I mean, I know how much you've written about the Negro Leagues and one, did a, wrote a wonderful book there. I mean, to me, one of the – these guys, the African-American Mets, this was long enough ago that they were really the, the first generation, the baseball children, if you will, of Jackie Robinson. Right. So Cleon Jones is from – He's born, raised, and still lives in a in a community that the the locals know as Africa Town, Alabama, and is where the last slave ship ever to come to the United States, called the Clotilda, uh, dropped its its illicit human cargo in eighteen sixty. And and the people, the residents of the current day in Africa Town, many of them are descendants of people who were on that slave ship. That's where Cleon Jones, the, the sure. Mets' greatest hitter uh, in their history to that point, a guy who hit 340 in uh, 1969, that's where he's from and and still lives, trying to – in fact, he's spearheading the efforts now to um, – to honor the history of the community and to and to uh, fundraise for a museum and get a welcome center going and um, – I mean, it, it's it really is a a, a remarkable team, and um, it was, uh, and you know they they have such a place in history as you referenced before, Joe, because they were so bad for so long, and for people in New York, the Mets were really sort of the 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 replacement in their in their baseball hearts for the for the departed and reviled Dodgers who who bolted for the West Coast and. <laughs> And when the Mets came along in 62, it almost didn't matter to people that they went 40 and 120. It, it was, you know, the base, National League baseball was back. And there are Mets and we love them, even if they're brutal. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, uh, you know, the, the Cleon Jones story uh, is particularly uh, touching because, uh, as you say, he still lives in in his town. And you talk about the life he lives there. You talk about, uh, you know, just being being just a huge member of this community and, and, and working uh, with people to help people. I mean, this is what his life has been since it ended. Um, when you look at these players now, I mean, obviously some of them are gone. Uh uh, the most famous Met, 69 Met, we just heard very, very sad news about Tom Seaver just uh, just a few weeks ago. Um, he he is uh, he is, um, you know, he's he's it's it's tough to, to hear that about your heroes. You write a lot about Seaver and here. What do you think at the end of the day is going to be Seaver's sort of lasting uh, legacy? Um, honestly, Joe, I think it's he's a he's a franchise changer. He was called. People still use if you walk down the streets in New York and you say who's the franchise, they'll say Tom Seaver. I yeah. mean he he was the he was the guy who changed everything. Who um, and it was and it was almost like you know he was. It, it was it was Camelot. There was this magic about it. I write in the book. He and his, you know, he, not only is this incredibly talented, articulate, smart, handsome guy, but he had the, you know, his his wife Nancy, who he met at USC, was, you know, just this uh, stunning young woman who was uh, <clears throat> there behind the Mets dugout for every game, rooting Tom on and. Um, and turned out like a fashion model, and they were like a real life Barbie and Ken, and uh, they and they and plus in 1969 in, in Tom Seaver's Hall of Fame career, that was the that was as good as it ever got. He, he won 25 games. He was he was sure. he was the man, and um, and they they really as Howie Howie Rose, the the Mets great broadcaster, told me that you know. It, the the arrival of Tom Seaver gave us gave us our first real icon. Now we had our Mickey Mantle, our Willie Mays, our our Sandy Koufax. You know, um, we had someone who you know we weren't just the the, the yeah. ragtag Mets anymore. We had Tom Seaver on our side, and it really was was a he was a powerful symbol and 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 it was way more than a symbol he was one of the great pitchers of all time and he did he changed everything for the for the franchise yeah i i think that when you look at certain players and obviously seaver uh everybody knows about the the famous trade to the reds in 77 and 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 how how heartbreaking that was and all you know his the, the he played for several teams there at the end um but uh, i would say that when you talk about uh player team you know you talk about i mean for better or for worse you talk about pete rose and it's and you know you think of the reds and you talk about uh mickey mantle and the yankees and there are only a few of those players who so deeply connect with an organization i i mean that's that's tom seaver right i mean that's it's he's still he's still the ultimate met and and probably always will be the ultimate met no there's no doubt about it and we he was <clears throat> The day of that trade in 1977, that was a that was a dark day in Met history. One of those days you don't forget where you were. And when he came back, so five or six years later, it was, um, you know, it, it wasn't just homecoming. I mean, it felt like something should be like you should add a new chapter to the Bible. I mean, it was uh, it was just a, a, 
you know, Tom is he's back where he, you know, he never should have left. I mean, he really was a was a baseball deity in so many ways. And um, yeah, it, it was uh, it was just such a such a special time. And it was there was a purity about the game back then, too, Joe, to not you know, not to, you know, go on and on about how great the good old days were, but the, the pace of the game, the, you know, the fact that there, everything, which everything just happened. I, I talked to Kuzman about this. I, the games all took two hours and he, I talked to Kuzman, he would get the ball back from Jerry Grody, he'd get on the mound, he would throw the pitch, the batter wouldn't step out, Grody would throw it back, Kuzman would get on the rubber and I timed him in one of the games and his time between pitches was just over 10 seconds. And I I asked him, I said, why did you pitch so fast? And he said, well, I could never figure out nothing to do between pitches. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it it just, um, and they also, you know, the other thing you, you may recall, and you go way back in baseball, you remember they had these things called complete games. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You got to go back. You got to go back a little bit for that. Yeah. So so the 1969 Mets had 51 complete games as a team. There there were not 51 complete games in all of baseball last year. So, um, I mean, guys would get the ball there. There was a there was a game that year, Joe, where Juan Marichal shut out the Mets for 13 innings and lost in the bottom of the 14th on a Tommy A.G. homer. Yeah, it was just a different time. It really was just different. (laughs) It's crazy. All right. Well, the book is They Said It Couldn't Be Done, The 69 Mets, New York City, and the Most Astounding Season in Baseball History uh, by my friend Wayne Coffey. Wayne, uh, book available everywhere. Uh, it's, it's, are, you, are you doing it? Do you have some events coming up? Are you going to do a little book signing? Do people uh, – you have anything special going on? Yeah. You know, we've, we've been doing a number of things. We have uh, – I have an event at a, uh, at a Barnes & Noble near where I live at the Palisades Mall in uh, West Nyack, New York. But we've got uh, – there are a couple of things. They're all listed on my uh, website, waynecoffeeauthor.com. And um, – so it's uh, yeah, it's been fun, and you know what, Joe? Um, I'll just add one other thing. One of the great thrills for me is that I interviewed the Mets' uh, phenomenal uh, TV play-by-play guy Gary Cohen for the book, who was 11 years old in '69, and Gary actually narrates the audio book, which is just one of the one of the the great oh, thrills awesome. that that I've ever had, really, as a writer, to have him reading my words to to tell the story of the 1969 Mets is. Uh, I mean, it really gives me chills to listen to them. So that, uh, that's that been a real kick, too. That's awesome. That's awesome. So the audiobook read by Gary Cohn, if you're if you're an audiobook person, that's awesome. Uh, the book is, again, they said it couldn't be done, but go to waynecoffeeauthor.com for all the details and, and anything else. Wayne, thank you so much for spending the time. It was my pleasure, Joe. Great to connect again.